0: Hello dear friends from around the world and welcome to the Bloody Heroes podcast number 6. I'm your host Urosh, and together with my incredible guests from bleeding disorder community, we are here to inspire you, to follow your dreams, to never give up and to create a life you were probably told it's out of your reach. When I heard that there is a patient with hemophilia who couldn't run but now competes at Ironman, I was really excited, and I wanted to find out his secret. I already knew that it's possible to run despite having a damaged ankle, because by changing my own diet, I'm able to run again. But my guest has another approach. He's also much more than just a sportsman, he's a leader in hemophilia community. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let me present you my today's guest. This is Clive Smith, president of UK Haemophilia Society, EHC Youth Ambassador, and newly elected World Federation of Haemophilia board member. Hello, Clive. Good morning. Firstly, I would like to congratulate you for being elected as World Federation of Haemophilia board member.
1: Thank you very much. Very kind. Yeah, it's very exciting time to be involved in it all.
0: This is a huge honor and also a big responsibility.
1: Yeah, very much so.
0: So you're a patient with severe hemophilia. Do you have any family history or you are the first one?
1: No, I've um, so I have severe haemophilia A, and I have two brothers also with severe haemophilia A. Um, I'm the youngest of the three brothers. Although I say youngest, I'm the youngest of twins by about four or five minutes. So, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have an older brother who's four years older than me, and I say and a twin brother who's four minutes older than me. Um, and we there was some family history. So I think my great uncle died when he was quite young, maybe two or three. Um, so many many years ago now, he bled to death sadly. So when my older brother was born. Born, he was tested relatively quickly and diagnosed. And so then when my twin brother and I were born, we were tested straight away and diagnosed within I think a matter of weeks. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that that's as far back as the history of hemophilia as we know it goes in our family.
0: You said that you have two brothers uh, with hemophilia. Yep. How was for your mom to have three kids uh, with hemophilia?
1: Busy. Busy, I think, is the best way I can describe it. Um, I think after she had my older brother, actually, I don't think she went back to work then. And then, obviously, having twins, which wasn't expected, and obviously having twins with haemophilia, then, yeah, my mum didn't go back to work, and she um, spent obviously all her time looking after us. And um, although interestingly, she says that having twins, she says, was easier have the easier than when she had my older brother. Um, she feels a little bit like um, once she'd had one, she was she was into the routine and the habit, I guess. So um, she felt that the two of us were. Easier, which is um, is quite unusual, I think. But um, it was obviously having haemophilia added an extra dimension to it. We lived a good hour each way to the hospital. And this was a time in the early 80s when we weren't initially on home treatment. So if one of us had a bleed, then all three of us had to go up, obviously drive up in the car with my mum. And sometimes, as I've said before, I think um, my mum would drive up in the morning with one of us and we'd get home and another one of us would have a bleed. So we'd have to drive up again in the evening. Um, it wasn't unusual for at least two of us to be on crutch or in a wheelchair when we were young going mm-hmm. to school and that sort of thing. So yes, haemophilia presented an extra challenge and an extra dimension to growing up. But um, my mum in particular, and my dad too, seemed to take it relatively well and in their stride. And um, yeah, we, we, I think we, we coped with it relatively well despite the challenges.
0: So then while growing up, um, what was the treatment that you were receiving?
1: Initially, as I say, I was born in 1980. So initially yeah. it was on-demand treatment. So if I had a bleed, obviously we'd have to go to the hospital. Um, around age five, my mum learned to do home treatment, which meant we could obviously have factors stored at home in the fridge, which was, was a huge change because as I say all those trips up to the hospital, um, not all of them, but many of them we could do away with because my mum was able to treat at home. She was able to phone the hospital, explain what the problem was and they would then give her advice on how much to treat and how often etc and it was only really when bleeds persisted and, and, and lasted longer than a, than a day or two maybe that we would go up to have them examined so mm-hmm. that changed things significantly and then I think when I was probably around eight or nine um, I learned to do my injection myself and it was it was very different um to how it is now in the sense that i can literally i can do my injection in five minutes now i can get the box out you know draw it up inject and and be off doing something else in five minutes but it took a long time back then you may remember and others i'm sure remember that the volume of treatment you had was huge you might have a huge 50 ml syringe for example and you had to mix the water with the powder and then it had to go into a heated bath which meant boiling the kettle so it'd go into a tray with hot water and you'd then leave it in there to mix It was a half an hour job to do your treatment. And so I think when myself and my two brothers learned to do it ourselves, um, that again was a huge weight off my mum's mind in the sense that she could get on and do other things at home. Um, Because doing your treatment, you can imagine with three boys all doing their treatment at the same time, it was quite an event at home. But I say when we were able to do it ourselves, that was um, significant. And I say it really did reduce the burden. And I think in a way, obviously, you'd never wish hemophilia on anybody. But um, the fact that all three of us had it was a help because nobody was different we were all different but i say we were all actually in our own home it was normal to have hemophilia and to be injecting and as ever boys being boys we were quite competitive so we'd be quite competitive even about things like being able to draw up your treatment quicker than the other one, or being able <laughs> to learn to do it first. So we learned to do it in, in, in a nice, relaxed way. Um, and I say, it was, there was that element of competition between us. So I think that really helped that all three of us had haemophilia. So we understood each other. When one of us was okay and the other one wasn't, was on crutches, or on wheelchair, we knew what it was like. So we'd always look out for each other and help each other. Um, so I think that really helped. Um, there was a, certainly a sense of camaraderie between the three of us growing up because we were all very much in it together.
0: Wow, you already had factor concentrates in 80s. So only your older brother had cryo?
1: Yeah, we certainly had cryo when we were very young as well. I don't think we had that much of it. I don't remember having too many bleeds when I was very young. Um, my difficult period was really in the late 80s, around 1987, 88. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, initially, my left elbow had been my problem. So um, you and I are on a video chat here, so you'll be able to see it, but the listeners won't. But I can't touch yeah. my elbow with my uh-huh, left arm, okay. for example. Yeah. So I used to go to bed with my left arm in a splint to try and keep it straight. And as I say, I still don't have full flexion in it. Mm-hmm. After that, my real issue became my left ankle and for a good year, if not nearly two years probably, um, I had real issues with my left ankle where I just kept, it was my target joint and I just got repeated bleeds into it. So I would probably be on crutches or on in a wheelchair for three weeks out of four. So I'd probably walk on walk vaguely normally for about one week a month and that lasted for a good 18 months, two years. I'd often have a splint on my ankle, so I'd be on crutches or in a wheelchair. And one of the big things that happened is actually my left leg, even now if you look at two of them Mm -hmm. my left leg is slightly smaller than my right leg because i had muscle wastage from not using it despite all the the work i've done since that the the two of them have never quite reached that balance i don't notice it when i'm walking or running or cycling or doing anything like that i don't notice the difference but say physically you can see the difference between the two legs from the muscle wastage that that caused over that period Mm
0: -hmm. you were mentioning that your left uh, ankle was very problematic Mm -hmm. what stopped those problems
1: prophylaxis 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 treatment, Uh yeah, it's that simple. So I was on demand treatment then, so obviously when I had a bleed, I treated. But yeah, late 80s, around 89 or so, um, I moved on to prophylaxis treatment and... Things got significantly better very, very quickly within weeks and because I was obviously treating to prevent the bleeding. I could just do simple things like walk to school. I could get out of the car and walk to the school in the morning and I could walk between classrooms and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I still had the occasional bleed, but they were nowhere near as bad. So I might be on crutches or in a wheelchair for maybe a day rather than two or three or maybe longer. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, prophylaxis three times a week um, and that really changed things. I used to get up for school three times a week, usually, usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'd do it. And um, yeah, before school, I do my treatment. And um, I say I, I was, became significantly better very, very quickly. And then after a, probably a year or two, I started to be able to take part a little bit more in exercise at school. So doing physical, um, physical exercise and just being able to play football in the playground and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, prophylaxis was absolutely life-changing for me.
0: Okay. So when you received your prophylaxis, at that time, you were still able to run or you're Joint was already damaged.
1: No, I, I didn't. I really didn't start running until I was in my, or running properly at least, until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. So um, running was never something I really considered. And when I go back and say I, I used to play a little bit of football, I played a couple of times for school, but I was always the goalkeeper, which was, was quite ironic because, of course, when you spoke to the doctors, they, you'd ask them about playing football and they'd say, yes, they say, but, but don't be the goalkeeper because obviously they <laughs> think you're going to get the ball kicked at you or you're going to get kicked. But the reason I was the goalkeeper was because I couldn't run around i mm-hmm. couldn't run run up and down the pitch all the time because that would have hurt my ankle but i could happily stand there and you know run three four five meters if i needed to to get ball. Um, and i was quite tall as well which helped being a goalkeeper yeah so um yeah i, I didn't become a goalkeeper to spite or annoy my doctors i, I did it because i couldn't <laughs> run as much and i just wanted to be part of it all
0: in a way you share uh, the same story as everyone that i know with hemophilia we were all goalkeepers because we were not able to run But then uh, in your life, something changed and you decided that you want to run. What happened?
1: Um, I think I, I'd done a little bit of exercise when I was, I say, when I was at school. The main thing I did at school actually was basketball. Um, so my ankle—that was a good four or five years later, really, or yeah, maybe two or three years later when I first started doing it. So I used to play basketball at school. I used to wear some sort of proper boots. Some people remember the Reebok Pump boots that were very famous at the time. The Nike Air mm-hmm. Jordan boots were out at the time, and then Reebok brought their own one out. They had a little squeezy bit. It looked like half a basketball on the front, and okay. used to push it and squeeze it, and the air I used to go into them. So I used to wear a pair of these Reebok pumps um, and they they really helped my ankle actually wearing those sort of ankle boots to run and play basketball with. So I did that. And then sort of in my late teens, early twenties, I always went to the gym a little bit, nothing very serious, but just to, just to do something as it were. And then it was probably, it was towards my late twenties. Um, I'd met my now wife by then and she ran the London marathon and she was quite active. She was running half marathons and doing other bits and pieces. And I thought it was something I'd like to have a go at. So it was was really my wife, Claire, that inspired me to get into doing a little bit of running to complement what I was doing in the gym um, and just to get out and about really for some fresh air too. And so I started running with her and we started running sort of twice, three times a week. And then when I started running, then maybe four or five times a week, that's really when the problem started. Mm-hmm. I think I'd probably only been running for about a month, six weeks, just building it up gradually. And that's when the real problem started and I had three, probably major bleeds into my left ankle. And they were really curious. I've never had anything like it since or anything like it before, but I would run, I would be okay afterwards, then I would go to bed and then I would get up in the morning and I would literally, i put my foot over the edge of the bed and it just felt like all the blood in my body just drained into my left ankle. (laughs) And it became incredibly painful very, very quickly. And I could hardly walk to even get to the bathroom in the morning when I got up. And that happened twice so it happened once i treated and i think after a couple of days it was better and i went back to work and i was okay and then i carried on the running doing that a little bit and then about two or three weeks later it happened again so i repeated the same process in terms of treating and resting and it was okay and i went back to work and then it happened a third time i think i'd actually reduced the running a little bit by then obviously because of the pain i've been having but the third time it happened it was incredibly painful as probably some of the worst pain I've ever experienced. And I had ended up having three weeks off work. I couldn't walk, I was in crutches, I didn't leave the house. I lived, we lived in an apartment, so I'm on a ground floor, but I didn't go out. Um, I was on crutches just to get me around the house. Yeah. It, it was horrible, uh, absolutely horrible. I, I look back at that now, and it was a quite a dark and difficult time, as you can imagine, because not only had I lost something that's very quickly become important to me, namely being able to go out and go running and just be out with my wife, All of a sudden, I wasn't able to go to work. Um, I'm self-employed, so that had a huge impact on me. And then I wasn't even able to go out, so I couldn't even leave the house. So um, it felt like I'd wound the clock back 20 years to when I was back at school or even not at school, perhaps sometimes with bleeds. And I'm sure you'll remember, and and other Mm -hmm. people have a similar situation where when you're at school, you didn't actually go out at playtime. You stayed in the classroom and somebody could stay in with you. And it felt like, as I say, I'd wound the clock back 20 years despite the advances in treatment and, and how my body had manage to cope and change so it was it was really difficult um, very difficult and so as a result of it obviously i didn't want to give up running generally um but what happened is that i realized and as many people appreciate is you in order to get better at running you don't just need to go and run there are other things you can do so you can go and ride a bike or you can go to the gym and do all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. so that's really how i got into triathlon because obviously triathlon is three sports plus some gym work. Um, and that's why I ended up doing triathlon rather than just being a, a pure runner, as it were. And I think if I did go back to just running, I think there's, there's no way I could do it any more than maybe even four or probably even three times a week at the moment. And for many years now, I've mainly run three times a week. Mm. Um, and on other days like today, I've already been on, been on my bike and done a bike session this morning and I'll swim later. I ran yesterday and I'll run tomorrow. So yeah, I'll always take a day, at least a day off between running now to make sure my ankle has that time to mm-hmm. recover. Um, so yeah, that's how I got into running. But in terms of getting back to running at a decent level again, it took me a long time. It took me a good year, 18 months of going to the gym. So I've already talked about the imbalance in my left and right leg. Um, and I had a, a, a real weakness in my left glute. So um my physio told me so quite often when you have an issue in a joint it then skips a joint so if you've got a problem in the ankle then it quite often goes into the joint um, so in, into the glute so um, as I say it sort of skipped the knee and went into my glute the problem so I had to do a lot of work in the gym um, some of it with a personal trainer and building up my strength um, on my left hand side and just working on that imbalance and I then gradually built my running back up from that base when I built that strength in the gym.
0: When we met you also mentioned that you were putting something in your shoes
1: yeah i had those for a while actually not very long um, so i had some inserts in my shoes i used to have them in my work shoes um, and then i the trainers i wear i mean everybody's different anybody when they run so say not just hemophilia that impacts you but i do what's known as over pronate so my feet claps in when you look at them so it means that whenever i buy trainers i always have to buy what referred to as a support trainer so they've got a bit more the inner sole on the instep step of your foot is raised a little bit to help uh-huh. you. so yeah i I wore those in my shoes for a little while. But actually, once I'd done the strength work in the gym, and I think I got some new shoes and the inserts were getting a bit old and tatty, I didn't put them in. I thought, I'll just try them and see how I get on. And actually, it was fine. So it was more of a stopgap, actually, that period, having the inserts in my shoes. Um, It's not something I persisted with long term.
0: Aha. Okay. 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 So also from your experience, the most important thing is to strengthen our muscles.
1: Yeah, it was very much for me. It was very much focusing on my weaknesses. So working Mm -hmm. out where those weaknesses were and um, focusing on those um, in order to enable me to run. Mm-hmm. That was very much my, my secret, as it were, if I could put it that way. It's probably not much of a secret, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, every, everybody needs to focus on their weaknesses to an extent. But, um, but yeah, it wasn't just a case of resting and thinking I can go back to what I was doing or try and do it again. So it was a case of taking a different approach, mm-hmm. looking at it in a different way, thinking, right, how can I get back to running? But How can I improve my fitness generally and improve my running? And how can I do it in a different way to other than just running?
0: Mm-hmm. So you said that you started with triathlon how many kilometers of running cycling and swimming
1: uh is this triathlons at different distances so actually what i did is over several years i built up the distance so i started off with what we in the uk would call a super sprint distance then i think i did sprint distance then i did olympic then i got to half ironman and then i did ironman but i i didn't do all that over a year i did that over the course of three or four years Mm -hmm. so a um Standard, so a a shorter distance one that I started with would have been something like a 750 metre swim, a 20 kilometre bike ride, and then a five kilometre run. Mm -hmm. So I did three or four of those over the course of one year. And then the next year I did some Olympic distances, which is a 1500 metre swim, and then a 40 kilometre bike, and then a 10 kilometre run. And the year after that, I did two half Ironmans, which is a 1.9 kilometre swim, a 90 kilometre bike, and then you run a half Mm -hmm. marathon. So I did two of those. And it was only then, really, after I'd done, I think, my first half Ironman that I decided I wanted to try and do an Ironman. I never started off on day one thinking, I'm going to get into triathlon and I want to do an Ironman. That was, <laughs> that was never the aim. And in fact, I, we, we used to, there was a group of us, a group of friends, we used to go swimming at a lake near where I used to live. And we'd go there and we'd see people with Iron Man t-shirts and bags and things. And we used to sit there and shake our heads and just think they were crazy. <laughs> and so that, that was very much my philosophy back then, that these people are crazy and there was no way I could ever do one. But I say it was just incremental, just sort of year by year i kept building it up since just kept pushing my body just to see what was possible mm-hmm. but I, I like to think i did it in a managed way in the sense I, so i didn't just go from zero to doing that within six months that i built my body up over the course of a year to see what it could withstand and then i pushed it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until i got to a stage where um, i think it was 2014 um, i did my first ironman in zurich
0: and what are the distances for ironman
1: Ironman is a 3.8-kilometer swim, then 180-kilometer bike, and then you run a marathon at the end, and you do it all over one day. And it takes nearly a whole day? No, well, it takes about half a day. So I think Zurich took me 11 hours for- 44 minutes or 46 minutes. And I think since then, my best time was in Frankfurt, Ironman Frankfurt, which I did in 10 hours, 18 minutes. <laughs> so, um, the, the professionals a little bit quicker than that, probably about two hours quicker than me. But um, say so that's, um, they don't have joint damage and it's their full time yeah. job. So I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, 10 hours, 18 is, is pretty respectable for, wow, a, for incredible. A, a, an amateur. So, how
0: do you use uh, Factor before such an event? Do you increase your dosage
1: or? No, I stay on the same dose, actually, and, and interestingly, so, so now is actually quite an interesting period for me. So I, if, if I go back to when I first started doing triathlon, I was on standard half-life treatment, and I'd been on that for years as well, and I treated three times a week. And what happened is, with, obviously, with my ankle bleeds, that say the problems that I referred to earlier, and what I started to do was I started to treat myself, or I was already treating myself three days a week, but I started to treat myself on the days that I was running Because I know obviously that running being an impact sport is going to have more of an impact on Mm -hmm. my joints, quite literally. Um, And so I would so if I ran on a Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday or Tuesday or Wednesday, Friday and Sunday or something, those ended up being my treatment days. So I would always wait to treat on the day that I was going to run because I knew that was most likely to cause a bleed, whereas cycling and swimming... Unless obviously I come off my bike, that's a risk. But um, fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Uh-huh. Um, but I say, cycling and swimming are the least likely to cause me a bleed or any sort of damage. So that's what I was doing. And on race day, so even on an Ironman race day, I would treat myself with my standard amount of 3,000 units in the morning. And, and that would be it. I, I wouldn't – I don't think I've ever – in the four Ironmans I've done, I don't think I've ever given myself an extra dose on the Monday either, afterwards. Um, The best thing I find to do on the Monday, as crazy as it sounds, because you probably just want to sit down and eat pizza all day, (laughs) but um, the best thing i found to do is to go for a walk and just to get my joints moving again. Otherwise like anybody, they just seize up and start to get painful. Um, And actually one thing I one after Ironman Frankfurt, actually my left ankle was its always sore, don't get me wrong, after a race that long, but it was incredibly sore and the best thing I did actually was go back to the hotel where I was staying. And I had a warm bath and just got some heat into the ankle. And that really helped with the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So now I'll always treat treat on race day of the morning of the race. And I don't change my dose at all. And I don't give myself an extra dose the day before or day after or anything like that. But really interestingly for me now is back in April of this year, I've changed from standard half-life onto an extended half-life product. Mm -hmm. So now I only treat two days a week. And it's been a real mental shift for me because... As I said before, I always treat on the days that I run, whereas now obviously if I'm still running three days a week, there's a day of the week that I go out running and I don't treat myself. And that day actually this week was yesterday. Uh And it really took some adapting for me. So I think about two or three weeks into being on this new product, I got up one morning, put my run kit on, went downstairs, and I went to the fridge and got out of treatment because I thought, I'm going running, I need to do my factor before I go. Mm-hmm. And I stopped and I thought, no, actually, I only gave it to myself two days ago, I'm not due <laughs> a dose. So I actually had to put my thing, put the sharp spin away and everything and put the treatment back in the fridge, mm-hmm. almost hardwired to think I'm running, yeah. therefore I must yeah. treat. But as I say it was a not I suppose, a leap of faith to an extent, thinking actually I'm going to go out, I'm going to go running, and I don't need to treat today, mm. which was as I say it's been a real mental challenge for me. Um, mm. But uh, I, th- I think I'm I think I'm almost there. I think I'm almost there with it.
0: Did you also experience the same as I did that there is huge increase in quality of life just by shifting from uh, treating from three times per week to two times per week?
1: I didn't find it was a big shift. I know my my twin brother's been on extended half-life for three years or so now. And he actually did a trial of it. I couldn't do the trial. It just didn't work for me because I I live quite a long way from my center. I didn't. And and I I often thought about, should I move to an extended half-life? And the question, of course, was, was it right for me in terms of timing and everything else that was going Mm -hmm. on in my life? And actually, I thought, well, it's only one less injection each week, which... If I was maybe 10, 15 years younger, then that might have been a big difference. But because when I was young, I mean, as I say, when I was having bleeds, I used to treat myself every day, sometimes twice a day. Mm -hmm. So as unpleasant as putting a needle into yourself is, I'm very used to doing it. So I actually thought, well, what's the difference between three times a week and twice a week? Not actually that much. But um, I think I do appreciate it a little bit more than I might have thought in the sense that I think it's my veins. My veins are pretty good, but it is Mm -hmm. nice just to be able to use the, the better veins all the time because they have that bit longer to recover. Um, so occasionally there was a vein there were a couple of veins that I used were that were not always my favorite to use but um, I probably don't have to use them anymore because I, I say my veins get a bit more time to recover in between. So, um, but yeah, it's the other big thing, although I haven't experienced it very much is just being able to travel and, and carry a little bit less with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just as, as crazy as this sounds, the standard half-life that I was on in, in terms of the volume. So it, it used to be two boxes. It used to be the bottles and the uh, exchange needle in one box and then the syringe and everything else in another one. Mm-hmm. But the extended half-life I'm on now, The water is already drawn up into the syringe, so that just goes straight into the bottle. So the whole thing is just a lot smaller. It's a lot more compact, and it's a lot easier to travel with. So actually, that's quite a pleasant surprise that I wasn't expecting, and it's just it's a lot easier if I'm traveling just to be able to go to the fridge, grab the box, and take out, just know that everything's in there that I need, and be able to put it in my bag and go, um, so I think that, that makes a bit of a difference in terms of ease of travel. And I was, I was actually away last week and I took, you know, half as much as I normally would when going away because obviously it covers me for longer. And that was quite pleasant. too.
0: Mm-hmm. That's also a benefit. Yeah. So your life is not only about sport. Uh, you're also a leader in hemophilia community. How you became involved in UK hemophilia, uh, society.
1: I became a trustee of the UK Society nearly five years ago now, um, and the main driving force behind it was my former haemophilia nurse, Dr. Kate Kerr, who was my nurse at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, she's very well known within the haemophilia community. And despite having left Great Ormond Street a good 10, 15 years earlier, um, I was still very much in touch with her. and. I used to live in London until about five, six years ago Um, and I was working as a lawyer and I was going to court every day and obviously I was very busy Mm -hmm. and often you didn't know where you were going to be. I could be in one city one day and another city the next and you'd obviously have a lot of work and um, preparation to do overnight. And my wife and I decided to leave London and move to the north of England, move to Yorkshire and um, I decided to step back from working full time and I started uh, teaching which is always always something I'd done a little bit part time anyway, not very much at all. But um, I decided to do that instead of working full time um, when we moved to Yorkshire. So I now teach other lawyers who are already qualified, obviously Mm -hmm. like uh, lots of other professionals, doctors and accountants and that you all have to keep up your professional qualification. So I teach people courses to help them keep up their professional qualification. So obviously, I stepped back from full-time practice and started to work part-time. And as I say my my former nurse Kate said to me, oh, she said now you've got some more time on your <laughs> hands, you should become a trustee of the Haemophilia Society. She said I'm a member, so well she was she's on the board anyway. But she said I can propose you, and I can get someone else to second you. So um, so I I I was initially interviewed for the role of chair of the board uh, along with somebody else called Barry Flynn. Barry undoubtedly had more experience, uh, life experience generally than me. He's a He was a senior partner at Ernest & Young, a big accountancy firm. And uh, so he was appointed to the role of chair, but I was asked if I still wanted to be a trustee as well. So I ran for election and, became a, and got elected. And then in Glasgow, at the World Federation of Haemophilia in Glasgow, um, our chair, Barry Flynn, he was elected onto the board of the World Federation of Haemophilia as the vice president of finance, obviously with his accountancy background. And having been elected onto the board, he felt that he didn't really have the time to be the vice president of finance and be the chair of the Haemophilia Society. He was happy to continue as a trustee, but obviously being the chair is a bit more of a evolved role. So he um, decided to step back and, and the board very kindly asked me if I'd like to be the chair. So I took over as chair, I think, two years ago now. Um, so yeah, as, said, as I say, I've been the chair of the UK Hemophilia Society for the last two years. Um, I say for the last two years, I've also been, um, I then, actually, it was as a result of a conversation I had in Glasgow that I applied to be the youth advisor to the European Hemophilia Consortium. So I've been doing that for the last two years as well, which has been absolutely fantastic. Several weekends in Amsterdam with um, you know sort of 15, 20 plus people from around Europe who are absolutely fantastic energy and ideas. And I think it's brilliant that the EHC um, provide these opportunities for them to have some training. And I I sort of think back to 20, 15 20 years ago I would have loved to have been involved in something like that myself so it's um it's great that I've still been able to be involved and in even at this sort of later stage you know I'm no longer a youth as it were but um I say it's <laughs> been great that I've been able to bridge that gap I think I think I'm probably a slightly younger leader within the hemophilia community so I think it's nice that I'm able to bridge that gap to people who are maybe sort of 10 15 years younger than me and show them that there are opportunities for those people um, within europe and within the world as well for them to get involved
0: Mm -hmm. what do you think was crucial for you for your leadership in a way career to be able to take off so quickly
1: i think three things firstly um first i'm obviously very fortunate in terms of my profession um say having been in practice full-time as a barrister um I'm used to going to court. I'm used to making closing speeches to juries, cross-examining witnesses, and those sorts of things. So I'm very used to public speaking, is Uh what I'm trying to say. So that's obviously a huge benefit within the community because much of what we do is about advocacy. So having that advocacy background and training is obviously really helpful for me Uh, so it's given me those skills that I'm able to adapt and use within the community. Um, Secondly obviously being having a haemophilia myself and having severe haemophilia obviously your experiences are somewhat different to others who might have mild or moderate haemophilia and obviously having two brothers with haemophilia and a niece with mild haemophilia I think I've got a relatively good experience of the community, not all of it, of course, but Mm -hmm. I think I've got a relatively good experience of the community. And then thirdly, I think having the right people around me, having the support. So having someone like, say, my former nurse, Kate Care, who is so very well known and very well connected within the community, I think it helps if you're running for positions and people are not sure who to vote for and they speak to people and obviously if people recommend you as a result of your work and your experience then all of that helps too so um, as you say I think really the first time I did anything outside the UK society was really world fed in 2018 and here I am two years later say having been on the EHC Youth Committee and uh, now on the World Hemophilia Board so it's been a a relatively rapid rise as it were to, to where I am now but as I say I think those are the Three things really that I've really been able to call upon and draw together really to get me where I am now.
0: I think this is a great advice for those who want to become a leader. So great um, speaking skills and.
1: Uh... If you look at many advocates within the hemophilia community, I think a lot of them have had their own careers, which I think I think that in itself is really inspiring for the community. Obviously. We want to live in a world where there's treatment for all, and but also opportunity for all, opportunity mm-hmm. for people to fulfill their dreams, be it, as I mentioned already, our, our former chair, Barry, who had a very successful career as an accountant, or if you look at someone like Declan Noon as the president of the HC. Yeah. Um, he's had, obviously, a, a very good career in, in health and economics and that sort of side. And what he's been able to do is he's been able to take those skills and transfer them into the haemophilia community in the same way that your Brian O'Manis and your Mark Skinners and your Glenn Pearces and all those sorts of leaders within the community have done. They've all had their own careers and they've been able to then bring the skills that they've learned from their own careers into the haemophilia community. So I, I think, and I sort of go back almost to when I was at school, I remember we there was somebody I was at school with who was incredibly good at politics and uh, he said he wanted to go to university, he wanted to go to Oxford and read politics. My teacher's advice to him was don't go to Oxford and read politics. She said, go and read something else. She said, if you want to get into politics, she said, you can pick up the politics later. And it's almost the same advice I'd give to anybody else who wants to get involved in, I think, advocacy within the community. Go and get some skills elsewhere. Go and learn whatever it is, be it in accountancy, be it in medicine, be it in health economics, wherever it is, go and get your experience there and you can, you can pick up the haemophilia side later in the sense that you've obviously got experience anyway or you know, haemophilia or Von Willebrand's disease or whatever bleeding disorder it is. But if you can get that experience elsewhere, which you can then transfer and bring into the community, I think that's when you're gonna make yourself a valuable member of the community or indeed a more valuable member of the community by bringing those skills that perhaps other people don't have.
0: Mm-hmm. Great insights. So now having so many experiences already, is there something that you would advise to your younger self if you had a chance?
1: Um it's 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 a really difficult question to answer because it in a way I suppose looking back at my life I I have no regrets in the sense that mm-hmm. if I were to go back and would I change anything I think the answer is probably not. I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, obviously, you know, many people think that obviously being born with a bleeding disorder is obviously a, a huge challenge, and, and 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 it rightly so it is, and it, it it is a challenge. But I feel, in a perverse way, I suppose, I feel privileged to be part of the haemophilia community. And without my experiences, then would I be the same person? I know lots of people talk about the fact that their identity is very much wrapped up with their haemophilia, and mm-hmm. I. I suppose I'm not very different to all those people. In terms of advice for my younger self, um, no, maybe this might sound a little bit ironic considering where I am and what I've achieved, but I I think maybe just to to believe in yourself a little bit more. And I've always been really fortunate to have some amazing people around me who've encouraged me to do things. And I can think of particular parts of my life obviously my parents who supported me growing up and then when I was at school when I was in sixth form doing my A levels and I was I was just really thinking about going to university no one in my family had ever been to university and I had a, a really good teacher and she encouraged me to go to university she said uh, I think her word was it would be a crime if you didn't go to university she said you've got so much to offer and I think it's got so much to offer you and as a result of that I moved on to obviously the next stage of going to university and then becoming a barrister. And then again, the encouragement I received from from Kate, my former nurse, about being involved with the society and then other people encouraging me to apply for positions and roles within the EHC and World Fed. So um, I hope that I can give that experience back to others. So I th- I hope I can encourage others to do what I did, where they perhaps think that they don't have the belief or they perhaps don't think they're capable of doing something. I I think if I I say, if I could go back, I think I would say to myself, just believe in yourself a little bit more. And, um, but I say, despite that, I think I was very fortunate to have been encouraged exactly the right time by a Mm -hmm. number of people um, to do what on reflection was the right thing at the right time.
0: Okay, so I have the last question for you to conclude this interesting conversation. Do you have any message for... um, the bloody heroes around the
1: world? Um, I I think you're all brilliant. Um, I think you're all fantastic. So um, whatever challenges you're facing. um, And as I mentioned just now, I mean, obviously having haemophilia is a a challenge, but I'm incredibly privileged to have been able to grow up in the Western world where treatment has been so good for it and I've been able to achieve what I have. Um, But I think the really important thing for me and anybody I think with a bleeding disorder is that don't ever think that your bleeding disorder should limit you in any way. Um, And and I appreciate, as I say, that's very easy for me to say with with the quality of treatment I have. But I've seen so many people from countries that don't have the treatment that I have that they still don't let their haemophilia define them as as much as it might or limit them in any way. And as I say, that would really be my message from my experience that when I found that there was a challenge, it was a case of just taking a step back and looking to see if there was another way I could approach it. So um, I think I'd say to anybody with a bleeding disorder, don't let it limit you. Um, and actually I think having a bleeding disorder, in a way, is almost a superpower. I think it really inspires many people. Um, lots of people have been told, no, you can't do something or you shouldn't do something because of your bleeding disorder. And I know there are a lot of us who are very bloody minded and um, we simply refuse to be told no. And actually I, I often wonder whether if we didn't have a bleeding disorder, would we achieve what we have? So um I so say, I think, uh, don't let your bleeding disorder place any limits on you.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Clive. It was, uh, wow, yeah, wonderful.
1: Thank you, really good to see you.